0: I'm pretty sure that's not what we're here to talk
1: about. <laughs> that's what you just did.
0: This this is not the show. <laughs> so are you ready to talk about Groundhog Day? Uh... You are listening to Priority, a podcast about choices and limitations and getting stuff done. Priority is hosted by Katie Leibman and her brother, Max Leibman. That's me. Today's episode is entitled, Verb the One You're With. For complete show notes, including links to anything we discuss on today's episode, visit us online at priority.fm slash two. So we are talking today about Sheena Iyengar's Art of Choosing, uh, which I think was your idea, if I remember correctly. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you have any opening remarks?
1: <laughs> opening remarks. Sounds very formal and things. Um, Yeah, something I was thinking about, um, something last week had triggered this, um, something about choice, because then I wrote down on my notepad, choice topic, um, <laughs> and it is a choice topic.
0: You're a choice topic. Choice.
1: Um, but yeah, and then reviewing the things we were thinking about. So Barry Schwartz, Sheena Iyengar, um, various other things. Um, I couldn't help but thinking about the, the way that we talk about emotion in decision making. Um, so one of your sources looking back over now. Um, Yeah. Thinking fast and slow. Oh, which now Mm -hmm. that I think of it, I have heard of this. It seemed unfamiliar when I was reading, but Mm. um, now I'm remembering um, people talking about it.
0: It is the Bible of uh, cognitive biases. It (laughs) It is amazing and gigantic it took me like and i i read pretty fast but it was it's so it's not poorly written dense but it's dense as in there's a lot of information mm. a lot of very rich stuff mm-hmm. in it it took me like 3 months to read it when i finally sat down and actually read mm. it um and and it's usually about it's about twice as long as a book that would normally take me a week to read so it should have been like a 2 week book but mm. like i just i could not i could not just churn my way through it there was too much to think you about. had
1: to think slow <laughs> i had
0: to think slow Um, In order to think fast and slow and Kahneman. Yes. uh, This joke is going nowhere. Please continue.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, I I do recognize it. Um, But I was drawn to your, um, so Kahneman talks about two systems of thought in the book. um, As you describe it, there's the fast and frugal, instinctive and emotional type of thinking. And the second is a slow, deliberative, conscious, and costly type. Um, yes,
0: I believe that is literally what I typed in the note. Yes,
1: document. it is. Um, but I don't know if that's his language or your language for his ideas.
0: I think I think the I, – I don't remember most of those words being there, but I, I think that's a good summary. And he definitely does say fast and frugal. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so what I was thinking about there, and I, I understand the two general – Um, categories and how they could be useful. Um, But I was also thinking about the implication that slow, deliberate decision-making can't also be emotional, that it is um, necessarily more rational and that something that is necessarily more rational is necessarily less emotional. Um, Mm -hmm. This is something I think about a lot in in other venues, too. Um, Sure. So I was thinking about that. So maybe that would be a... A place to dive
0: in. Well, that that might be a good a good place to start. Now, one thing I'll say about that thought, um, and as you know, I am a neuroscientist. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I I do think what you just said. I think it's a good summary of the way we think about these things. Mm-hmm. We tend to think like when we stop and slow down and think, we're using our our you know our thinking capacity and not our feeling capacity. And when we're making our snap decisions, we are using we are using our feeling capacity and and not so much our thinking capacity. And in fact. Um, one of the other things I put in the notes are is the uh, the new Franklin Covey book, The Five Choices, which has been on my mind a lot, of course, because I just read it. It just came mm-hmm. out. Um, they actually refer to these these two systems of thought. Um, I, I think mostly drawing on actual research like <laughs> Tversky. They they talk a lot about you know the brain scientists that they talk to to make the program. Uh, but they actually refer to them as the reactive brain and the thinking brain. Um hmm. so they also kind of put thinking you know on, on system two they they make the rational deliberative part thinking you mm-hmm. know and they don't they don't really say like you know one's feeling and the other isn't but anyhow uh the the whole the whole point i'm dancing around is i i do i think that is how we tend to think of them and categorize them as one is feeling and one is thinking but i i suspect um if we were to talk to an actual neuroscientist, mm. not me, <laughs> we would find out that the two are a lot more wrapped together in terms of, uh, the two being emotion and thinking, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think a lot of what we do that we call rational thought is actually much more wrapped up in our feelings than we suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you know, case in point, I mean, <laughs> we are, are hugely good at, um, this might even be talked about in Thinking Fast and Slow. I don't remember. It's a gigantic book. Uh, but I know it's talked about elsewhere. We are, as human beings, we are hugely capable of rationalizing almost any decision. So I think even a lot of what we, we would call like rational slow decision making is, is still very bound up in our feelings. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And well, and this come up, comes up in, uh, well, a lot of these people's work, but I'm thinking of, Barry Schwartz is in particular um, talking about how sometimes it doesn't matter if um, you've made the most rational and thoughtful decision. Um, if it does not align with your expectations, you can still be really disappointed with that choice and the outcome. Um, it oh, doesn't oh, matter absolutely. if objectively you should be better off, you know, whatever that means in the situation, than you were before. Um, if mm-hmm. it's not what you were going for, that it's not going to be good. It's not going to feel good for you. Um,
0: right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you uh, have you read Sheena Ingar's book, or were you just going off of the TED Talk?
1: Um, much of it, um, but I'm also very familiar with the TED Talk.
0: Um, okay. Well, and actually, as I'm thinking about it, the TED talk includes what I'm about to talk mm-hmm. about. Um, and, and <laughs> confession, I actually stopped the TED talk when it got to this point. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I know this material already. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I just read it yeah. and it's, I'm not interested in revisiting right, it. Right. I think much of it's about But from it is, the book. as she says there, uh, in, in the book, she has a, has really, I think a whole chapter about parents deciding whether or not to continue life yes. support for, you know, mm-hmm. like a, like a prematurely born or, or, uh, a baby with some sort of injuries or, or disorder when it comes out. Um, and in that case, I mean, setting aside, like, like, even if it is the rationally best choice and even if it gets them, you know, it, it's, it, they don't have, uh, nothing, nothing was wrong. Like it wasn't just rational. It was the right choice. Like nothing, nothing would be better had they gone the other route. Right. Um, They, you still sometimes feel repercussions and it has nothing to do with your expectations. You know, you, you could even have all your expectations of the horror and sorrow of losing a newborn child met, Mm -hmm. um, and still suffer because you made the decision and you have to bear the, the guilt and the weight of the decision. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, yeah, her work I think of in terms of, so she presents, Um, assumptions that especially Western American uh, folks will bring to the idea of decision-making that so often don't serve us well. And in that uh, anecdote, in that set of studies, um, she was talking about the assumption that you should never uh, refuse to make a choice. You should always take on a choice if given the opportunity. Mm. So if a doctor says, we'd like to leave this up to you, um yeah but then there she was saying this is where that assumption gets a little complicated well not a little complicated a lot complicated. <laughs> oh
0: yeah it's yeah i i skipped over that part of the video i was like eh, I've already i've already spent more time on this topic than i want to this week hmm. and not that it isn't a hugely important topic but mm-hmm. you know um i'm fast and frugal with my cognitive resources. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting, uh, I guess through line in, in several of the things that we, we linked to and talked about here. Um, this idea of, of should you always be reaching for choice when you have the opportunity to? Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, I'm, even the, even the works that aren't really explicitly about, um, choice per se, I think, uh, like, uh, I, I linked to, um, Willpower, uh, Baumeister and, Tierney's book, um, which I actually, I really like. It's one of these, you know, it's like a lot of these, these books that we're talking about. Um, it's sort of, you know, a social scientist talking about their research to a popular audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, with John Tierney, who is a, um, uh, a journalist. So he's, it's, it's a very polished, very well put together <laughs> book. I particularly like it because there's an entire chapter about David Allen's getting things <laughs> done. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, the guy's only written three books over the course of now 16 years, I think. So it's, it's nice when his work shows up somewhere else <laughs> in a book. Um, cause I have something new to read. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, like even, even that one, it's not so much about, uh, well, it is about decision making. Uh, but it, it's not about, um, the amount of choice we have in the way these other books are, but it kind of comes to the same conclusion that, huh. that um, you know, there is such a thing as too much. Hmm. Um, and I don't think it's anywhere near, you know, you know, Ingar was, was more just, you know, um, in a sort of almost Gladwellian blink fashion, just sort of like, here's the funny issues around choice and choosing. And here's, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. I can't really tell you how much <laughs> is the right amount. Um, Barry Schwartz is very prescriptive, Yeah, you know, he's like, we're well past the point of too much, um, time to change things up in the way we think about this and the way our society is arranged. Uh, willpower I think was, was a lot less prescriptive about it and, and a lot more general. It wasn't just about choices, but it definitely strongly made the case, um, that, you know, your, your cognitive resources are limited and you, you can't just sit around making important decisions all day, Hmm. um. You know, and if you're doing anything else that takes concentration or will power, mm-hmm. hence the title, um, you're drawing, drawing on a single pool of cognitive resources that need to be replenished. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, cause again, this new Franklin Covey book is, it's all about decision management mm-hmm. and energy management and attention management. And they, they kind of break those down in across different chapters, but, um, the more I think about it, the more I think that really the energy management and the decision management are very bound up together.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about so I I presented that dichotomy of um, emotional and rational, slow and fast. But I'm thinking also. So you said uh, one of those was talking about reactive versus thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's um, the the Franklin Covey book.
1: Yeah. So. Um, I feel and I'm I'm thinking about things David Allen has said too that sometimes our goal is to get regular decisions to the point that you can make them in a purely reactive way um because you learn to identify patterns and identify um I don't know the 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 courses of action that are best for you so that when that thing happens um, you know what to do and it can be reactive and it can be quick, but it is also right. the best one. So I'm thinking of yeah. when you're doing a system or going through a system that works for you. Like when I open email and I'm flooded with messages, um, there are certain patterns and things that I can do and they are extremely reactive. And that's the point is that I can get through them quickly to save my energy for the things that take consideration. Um, because junk that right. I know is junk does not need my time and energy.
0: <laughs> right, right. You know. Very, very inbox yeah. zero of you. Um, and it's, it also, I would say, I mean, that goes right back to, um, to two things. First of all, again, thinking fast and slow. System one, the, what, 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 you know, in the Franklin Covey book, they're calling the reactive brain. Mm-hmm. Reactive has, uh, especially with, with the Covey types has such like a bad connotation. It's like the opposite of proactive. Mm. Um, but I, I do think, I think there's something to what you just said about trying to get some decisions moved over, like, uh, you know, out, outsourced to that part of yourself that is, is quick and instantaneous. And as, as Kahneman says, fast and frugal. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, as I'm thinking about it, fast and frugal, uh, he might, I know he talks about it being fast and I know he uses the word frugal. I might actually be, be taking that exact formulation of fast and frugal out of blink now. That
1: I'm thinking ah. about it.
0: <laughs> Um but, but Blink too, I, you know, even going back to Gladwell um for all of all of his uh liberties with social science and storytelling, um one one point he kind of makes in that book, sort of, um, is that with a certain level of expertise, um, you know, as you as you as you have practiced certain decisions, certain things become automatic mm-hmm. that are very good decisions. Um the book is about snap judgments. Uh and he doesn't come down on the side that they're all bad, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think some of the more powerful lessons that could be drawn out of the book, and again, my, to reiterate, uh, in case this makes the show and people haven't heard me rant about this before, <laughs> my big complaint with Blink is that he does not tie it all together at the end and, you know, or at the beginning and say, these are the lessons I am trying to teach you and this is the conclusion that I'm coming to and here's what to do with mm-hmm. it. Um, and it would be fine if he, it, at the end said, well, there really isn't any, but, uh, he doesn't. It just kind of trails off. And then in speeches and, and other, other places, he has, you know, collected like the four neatly packaged lessons of Blink. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of the more powerful ones are that, that, you know, we can change context and make our decisions better. You know, we can do things like, uh, put up screens in audition halls for orchestras and make our decisions mm-hmm. better. Yeah. Um, but at one of the early, like the very beginning of the book is about, um, uh, an art forgery of a statue and how certain experts in the field who had been long practiced at looking these things looking at these things could could instantaneously draw on in their expertise and look at it and just feel and here's again like you know we're talking about feeling mm-hmm. and thinking you know some of them described it as as feeling cold or you know like a like a shudder would pass over them or it just they they couldn't say why but it just looked wrong um Yeah. And, and they took this enormously complex thing, you know, not just like, which email should I answer and which email should I throw away, but this enormously complex thing, like a master forger with years of experience and advanced techniques created this thing that I'm going to take, you know, decades of, of looking at this and other forgeries and real ones and art all over the world. And I'm going to condense that into this split second decision and say, no, that's not right. You know, mm-hmm. so I I think that's enormously powerful. Um, now I don't know how to, <laughs> how to condense that down into something you can just do. <laughs> Max, um, what's
1: the lesson? <laughs> the lesson is
0: spend an entire career doing something and you will be able to do it very fast and automatically.
1: Magic! Yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I'm thinking about, um, so you mentioned the idea of practicing decisions. Um, or at the very least you accumulate the experience of, um, Mm -hmm. making decisions and making discernments, right? So even, even if you aren't, um, the person with the power to make these choices, you know, in the case of the, Mm -hmm. of the art dealers or whoever, um, you're gaining so much knowledge that over time you sort of gain enough to be able to make those choices, um, more easily. Um, but it's funny on a very different scale, I was thinking about, so, so can decision-making be practiced? Can you become, um, sort of more experienced and more aware just of that process? Um, I was thinking about a conversation I had with, um, a former classmate of mine when, um, I was engaged. He was saying he had read something and had heard this from other people about how, um, certain types of decisions like finding a wedding dress or, or booking different things for a wedding. Um, It's not so much that um, you don't have any idea of what you want, or there are too many choices or these other sort of common obstacles um, to choice making, but that it is such a unique set of decisions that you are encountering them for the first time, and that time and energy is just part of it. Does that make sense? So, um, I think so. So although, especially as a woman who, um, you know, in our culture, we <laughs> more, more attention and more, oh, I don't even know, there's a lot more involved to buying clothing, <laughs> I think, for women in our culture. Um, I think there are far more options and far more variables.
0: a fair generalization.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm not. If
0: that's if no. that's controversial to anybody who's <laughs> listening, then sorry. Wow,
1: way to tick here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, I, and that's all I'm trying to do is paint a, a fair enough generalization. Yeah. So, with that said, so you could be someone who is very aware of um, how you feel in certain clothing, what styles you prefer, maybe what vendors you prefer. Um when you want or need an article of clothing, you know where to go, what to look for, and how to get it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but when you are faced with a new task, even though it seems to be in the same realm, so buying a wedding dress, um, you, for many people, the there's a first and only time that you ever go through that process. right? There is no chance really to practice the, emotion and sort of rational deliberate thinking if we're going back to that um that goes along with that process you might experience it as an observer or as a friend or relative Mm -hmm. um accompanying someone else making that decision um but you are only the subject of that decision
0: well and, and interestingly enough with that decision that specific example um the only people in the world, with the exception of perhaps a, uh, a truly extraordinary serial monogamist who is, say, married 40 times in their life and always has a, at least a big enough wedding to go buy a dress. Um, mm-hmm. With the exception of them, the only people in the world who have actually have expert level experience about, uh, about doing that, for the most part, are going to be people who... You know, for a lot of them, they're going to be people whose interests are not necessarily aligned with yours. Um, you know, for instance, mm. the people who sell the dress, um, the people who do modifications <laughs> on dresses, the people who, uh, you know, I, I don't know to what extent wedding planners help with picking out a dress, but you know, all, all of these people who it's in their interest, um, perhaps in the wedding planner's case, that you take a lot of time doing it if they're billing hourly. Um, in the mm-hmm. case of everybody else, that you spend the most amount of money possible and get the most, you know, additional accoutrements from them. And, it, you know, there are people who um, they want you to be happy with that dress. But at the end of the day, you know, it, <laughs> I think the fact that you're probably not going to be a repeat customer um, mm-hmm. means they, they, you know, their interests are not perfectly aligned with yours. But they do have the experience. They know what it means to buy a wedding dress. Um, even if none of, you know, if, if a store full of, of male and female salespeople all, all are unmarried, but they're all selling wedding dresses, they will have seen this process enough times to know some things you don't know. Sure. And to feel some things you don't feel. Um, you know, their, their Mm -hmm. feelings, uh, and I, I don't know which of these books I'm drawing this from, but their feelings will be educated.
1: Um. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking of um, language um, that I'm picking up in a lot of reading I'm doing about writing center theory and practice, Um, so the um, (laughs) academic entity of a writing center. I'm I'm
0: not actually making Um, fun of this, but it makes me laugh and smile that there is such a thing as writing center theory. Genuinely smile.
1: I'm not making fun of it. I like it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Please continue. Okay, um, but this phrase comes up, um, and what I'm thinking of is the introduction to a collection of essays from the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, they come back over and over again to this idea of an informed practice,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that it is both reflective and informed. So, well, this kind of ties back to, I think we got into this a little bit Um In a previous discussion so so the reflective part of um you know being a writing tutor or writing consultant the reflective part of it is um as you experience interactions with writers and after you've experienced interactions with writers um you are able to um be self-aware and think back on how things went um make observations and um, draw conclusions from them. So even if you had no um, no access or um, chose not to have any access to scholarship about the thing you're doing, at the very least, you're able to be self-reflective and draw from that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, if we think of it as writing or art, that's kind of the isolated genius Mm -hmm. model that if you seek within yourself far enough, you will find everything you need, that sort of thing. (laughs) Yes, master. (laughs) Right. Um, You just have to draw it out. That's all there is to it. Um, Then you're a writer. Yay. Um, And on the other hand is the, is the informed part, the idea that if you seek enough knowledge from other people's experience, um, you sort of build up your, your arsenal or your tool, toolbox or whatever that way, mm-hmm. and you can find the resources you need to continue to develop. Um, but really, it's a combination of both. So right. I keep I keep thinking about how helpful that language has been to me to think about um, pretty much anything, that you can have a reflective, informed practice. Right. Well, and it's um, I, I,
0: I like what you're saying about the both because I'm, I'm reminded of of uh, an example Merlin Mann used at some point about – uh, like it doesn't matter how many issues of Runner's World you've read, if you're not actually putting <laughs> on shoes and going running.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, but on the right. on the other hand, if you just go out with whatever shoes you've got on and start running every day, and and never look at what you're doing, like not only not only don't do any research, which might be a little unsafe, you know, you you want to know how to stretch properly and cool down mm-hmm. and take care of your body in other ways, um, you know, and not overdo it and, and injure yourself. Uh, but, but to not even be reflective, you know, not even, not even look at what you're doing and, and take anything in, you know, that would also be very destructive. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And that can be hard in a, in a new high stakes decision making situation.
0: Are, are you saying that buying a wedding dress is high stakes?
1: It can be. <laughs> Depends on how much money you're dropping. No, no, it totally um, is. I'm I'm being, cetera, I'm being facetious. <laughs> um, but really anything I mean the examples I've thought of so far are sort of retail based but it's anything really um, if it's a, a unique to you situation um, I think sometimes that that can disorient you so even if some of the conditions of the decision are familiar um, I don't know what do you think do you think a newness, the newness to a decision can affect the process, even if it should be familiar or should be sort of manageable?
0: I, I think it can. The thing that I'm thinking about as you talk about newness, though, is, is more that I, I wonder if sometimes we put too much stake into um, or worry too much about a new and novel decision. Um, and not that some of them should not be worried about. Again, going, going back to Ayingar and, you know, the parents who just found out that their baby is almost certainly going to die. And if it isn't going to die, it's going to yeah, have a horrible, short, brutish life. And should we just turn off life support? You know, mm-hmm. uh, obviously mm-hmm. that, that decision should be <laughs> taken with some solemnity. Um but for a lot of decisions uh whether they come up as a fast surprise or or it's like one of these one off like you're not going to do this very many times like who are you going to marry and what dress do you buy and etc <laughs> you know these novel mm-hmm. decisions i do also wonder if if for a lot of them we are actually putting um too much uh too much stock in the importance of quote unquote getting it right um hmm. And, and, uh, what I'm thinking of is, is two things. Um, one is I, I think it, you know, it marries, it marries, it marries who you matter. Um, <laughs> it matters that you can, <laughs>
1: who's in? Why is it taking my partner?
0: <laughs> it matters that you can speak clear sentences if you're going to have a podcast <laughs> New to self. Um, no, it it matters who you marry, but I also think with a lot of things in, like that and including that, it matters less who you marry than people often think. Um And, you know, we could do a whole show about, you know, romantic notions like there's the one for me out there and we're destined. And if I find the wrong person or I don't find them, then it's not going to be as good. No. I would bet research backs me up on this. There are a bajillion things that determine how happy and successful your relationship is that aren't, Mm -hmm. aren't really down to you're with the right person. Um, so much as one or the other or both of you decide something along the way about how you're going to conduct yourself in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um. This is not research-based at all, so what I'm about to say may be complete crap, and in fact, the story uh, might itself be a lie. I don't know. Um, but Stephen <laughs> Covey tells a story, I think it's in the original Seven Habits book, um, uh, about proactivity and, and choosing, and uh, he, he talks about a man who comes up to him after after a, a talk or during a seminar, you know, during a break, um, and is is saying like you know well how 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 would you handle this relationship situa- situation I'm, i've am you know i've been with my wife for all these years we've got these kids that are grown up and and it's just it's not working i just the love isn't there there's no feeling there i don't i don't love her you know but i can't make up my mind how you know am i supposed to leave i'm supposed to stay like what do i do and and cubby's yeah. advice to this guy was to 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 love her and he's like well i i think you must have misunderstood i'm i just told you you know we don't we don't really love each other anymore the love is gone and you know, Covey persisted, no, love her, love her, you know, and and finally got through to the guy, uh that that, you know, love is a verb. It's something you do. Um, it is also a feeling. There is love the feeling, you know, you can feel love, uh, unbidden and uncontrollably, but um his point is that we've you know, we had lost as a culture this idea of of you know, love is a verb and what do you do in the relationship. And uh, I, I do think there's research, at least related to that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of research that when you, uh, do something nice for someone, you mm-hmm. tend to end up liking them better. Uh, it, it's a cognitive dissonance thing. It's the same way, you know, that we, we tend to, uh, denigrate our enemies. We dehumanize our enemies in our mind. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it, up to and including if we wrong somebody, uh, either accidentally or even, even on purpose because of, you know, some selfish split second decision, you know, we make a bad move in traffic. Um, we might demonize the other person in so doing. Well, you know, I cut him off, but really yeah. he was going too fast, mm-hmm. and he's not thinking about you know where I have to go, and he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we dehumanize them because we like them less. You know, when we when we've treated them badly, um, or mm-hmm. rather we like them less when we've treated them badly because we're dehumanizing them. I don't I don't know what the causal chain is there, but anyhow, point is. <laughs> Um, I wonder if, if for a lot of these things, you know, we put too much stock in the decision, you know, um, a more, a more practical Mm -hmm. example might be like where you work. It matters hugely Mm -hmm. where you work, but it might matter as much or more what you do once you get there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking of the phrase, um, you can make it work. Mm hmm. You know, and that's something I think we tell ourselves and each other when um, you're faced with either a tough decision or a decision between a number of things that maybe don't seem so appealing. We say, "Okay, well, there are ways to make it work." Right. Um, maybe the space is too small, but we can make it work. Right. Maybe. Um, maybe. this relationship. Maybe isn't it'll be great, stressful, but we but... can make it
0: work to go back mm-hmm. to the relationship example again.
1: Yeah, and I think for some people that sounds you know, sort of defeated and like, no, I should I should hold out for the perfect whatever job, partner, location, home, situation, whatever. Um,
0: the perfect job, partner, location, home.
1: Yeah, yeah, if only. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to say, to even say you can make it work is sort of a declaration of re-seeing it As a choice, as an attitude that you are willing to adopt. And like you said, to do, you have, you have just verbed the situation.
0: Yeah, you've verbed the, verbed the situation. That's, that's perfect.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, I,
0: I, I think possibly towards the end of this, if we, if we do get into advice, I mean, one thing, one thing that a lot of these, these various authors and scientists have, have suggested that I would agree with is, you know, it's important to minimize the number of choices we're making, uh, in some ways, Mm -hmm. or at least to be, to be choosy about choosing. Um, (laughs) but, uh, at the same time, I, I, I do think, yeah, we, we might, you know, these novel choices, taking it back to your question of novel choices, Mm -hmm. maybe one way of framing it is the novel choice that is hard to make, isn't always going to be the most important choice in that, you know, the, all the million little decisions you're going to make after that are the important ones you know, the ones you can and go back to your, your reactive, you know, your, um, you know, making email decisions reactive, Mm -hmm. you know, isn't it much more important than who you end up with that you end up with someone that you can stand for long enough that you get to the point where you make reactive, you know, positive, uh, Mm -hmm. relationship actions where your, your natural reaction is patience and tolerance and kindness and, Mm -hmm. you know, support and all those things.
1: Love the one you're
0: with. As a verb.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's the next line of the song. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> verb the one you're with. Love them as a verb. <laughs> yes. Yeah, love them as a verb is better than verb the one you're with, because verb the one you're with sounds like a...
1: <laughs> that sounds like a Mad Lib.
0: Uh, and I don't want
1: to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. Ding. <laughs> Ding.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> actually, I'll, uh, I, I need to figure out what the other one of these was. So recently, um, you can tell me if this is in Iyengar's book, if you've read any portion of it. Um, I don't remember where I saw this. Uh, but somewhere recently, I came across someone saying that research had shown, uh, and this was a person who I think had actually looked at the research. It wasn't just a, studies have shown that da 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 da. Mm-hmm. I can tell you which studies, but studies have shown it. Um, but anyhow, somebody was citing that, that there, there was research showing that if you are too complimentary or, or hold too positive an, of an image of your partner in a romantic relationship, uh, it's actually stressful for the relationship. So, like, if you think the person you're with is, or act like the person you're with is better at things than they are, that that's, that's damaging to mm-hmm. the relationship. Um. Mm-hmm. But I've also heard the exact opposite also from somebody citing research uh, in the introduction to <laughs> um, Marcus Buckingham's first solo book after he left Gallup, um, The One Thing You Need to Know, which, by the way, is actually the three or four things you need to know, depending on how you count. <laughs> um, it's a very, very badly mistitled book. I, I don't think he knows how to count. Um, but one thing he says in the introduction is that research shows that if you hold a more positive image of your partner than they have and are more complimentary of their... Yeah, if you if you see strengths in their area of weakness, that that's good for the relationship. So, um, hmm. all all of which is to say, I don't know what actions are the best ones to make reactive in a relationship. Um, I don't sure. I don't have any science on that to drop on anybody, but
1: man, I'm trying to find. So I'm thinking of a couple different things, and I when you were talking about Iyengar, I was thinking of an example, and I can't remember if it's her work or elsewhere, but I know I've heard it more than one place. Um, suggest and in it's in, in reference to education, talking about how um, um, even in elementary age children, so even down to kindergarten, if you overpraise a kid um, for the, the, you know, if you're trying to reinforce good behavior or make everyone feel recognized, that sort of thing. Everybody gets over- a ribbon. Right, right, right. But when you do that, to a certain point, they know when you're doing it. They can sense mm-hmm. when the praise is undue. So you are making it worse, kind of mm. like you were saying, because you... It's like a, a you flattery are, effect. You're giving them doubt
0: mm. by
1: doing it, rather than being realistic in your responses to their behavior or doubt. performance or whatever it so, is. So
0: doubt in that like you are introducing the concept that when they get positive reinforcement, it might not be true?
1: Yeah, they have to question why mm. they're getting it because they know that they did not do as well as Little Johnny, who should have gotten more right. praise. But every but why did everyone get equal praise when I know I didn't do that well?
0: Oh, um. oh, because communism.
1: <laughs> yes, that. <laughs> yeah, so that even from a very young age, we know when praise is is not genuine. Um,
0: That's so and smart. It can be of you can bring that up.
1: Oh no, I don't like it. I don't like it. But you were talking about relationships even, and I um completely appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um there were especially you know, all sort yeah, of
0: Yeah, actually I just thought of something. I might I might have I might have maligned Marcus Buckingham's reputation here incorrectly. Um I still stand mm-hmm. by the fact that he can't count because his book is at least three things that you need to know, not one. Um okay. But, it just, it, I just, I was, I didn't even have to pull out the book to look and I was thinking it through. I think I, I think I see the distinction. I think, if I'm remembering correctly now, in Buckingham's book, he says that if one of the partners sees the other partner better than the other partner sees themselves, that's good for the relationship. So I think the distinction mm-hmm. is giving praise that's undue. So, I, I think, um, my third hand research report is, <laughs> mm-hmm. that it is good for a relationship if you see the other person better than they are, but not if you tell them they're better than they are.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, 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 And that makes sense in experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you still can't count. That. No, it's a very strange um, pressure. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's one of those things that can reshape how you see yourself, but if... That was not something you had held before. Right. Then, the only, yeah, the only word I can think of is doubt. Um, right. Well, and it's um,
0: <clears throat> there's probably we're I'm gonna pull this even further off course <laughs> into the relationship stuff. I I think there's probably a world of difference between having enough belief in somebody that you can help them come to see that in themselves, and. You know, flattering them for things they are not good at, and and making them doubt everything good you say about them.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So it's almost a, an issue of consistency. Um, and not that to be in a good relationship with a partner, you have to be a completely unhypocritical, um, absolutely
0: consistent person. Like me.
1: But and humble. <laughs> Very humble. full of humility. You, you must be full of humility. I am like
0: literally us. made of humility.
1: Humility pie. Mm, humility
0: um,
1: pie. Um, but that to each other, uh, I don't know. And i I'm trying to formulate the thought out loud, and it's not going well. But I'm thinking about the idea of balance um, and strengths. All the things you should talk. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got uh, single words and no thoughts.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, single word thoughts. I like those; they're easy to fit into a tweet. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I I wanted. I did have one note that is kind of unrelated to all of this, but it's related to the book that we are theoretically talking about, which um, is <laughs> Sheena Ingars, "The Art of Choosing." Uh, so one thing, one thing I actually might, we might want to talk about as an actual part of the topic in a moment, um, is <laughs> the jam study, um, uh, which for summary's sake, um, just to make sure I've got the details straight and, and correct me if I get any of these broad strokes wrong. It was a study done in a supermarket, um, fairly famous, uh, it's, it's a particular supermarket that is very large and has, even by modern supermarket standards, a lot of varieties of things to choose from. And, uh, there was a, a table set up with samples of jam from a particular brand. And they varied the number of jams set out. It, something like, you know, six at one point and, and, you know, twenty at another. Um, and it was found in the study that people who, who had had, uh, only six to sample from, you know, to choose from and, and sample, uh, mm-hmm. tended to like what they sampled better and, and make an actual decision when they went to buy jam and buy it and leave the store, you know, with it. Uh, more often than people who'd seen like the 20 jams who would just kind of, you know, they would sample, I think they might've even sampled more, but they wouldn't be able to make up their mind as often. And many fewer, I think, I think uh, if I'm remembering it right, it's like 3% who saw six in the sample table bought, or no, uh, 30% who saw six bought and 3% who saw 20 didn't. So it was like a, if I'm remembering the numbers right from the book, it's a tenfold difference, um, in the number of people who, who purchased jam, you know, based on whether they saw six or, you know, 20 or whatever it was, varieties... Yeah.
1: And just making sure you had it the right way. So if you were confronted with fewer, you were the more likely to buy. Right.
0: Right. I, yeah, I, yeah. I think this one might've made it into blink. Um, it certainly has made it into other books. It's in the paradox of choice. It's, it's all over the place. And actually this is, this is the part that's not really related to the topic, but I wanted to bring up cause <laughs> I thought it was funny. Um, so she, she has a, Iyengar has a passage in the book, which is one of my favorites. Um, and I've already spoiled the surprise for you if you've listened this far. Um, and actually, if you've ever heard of her before, it's already so spoiled for you because you've probably heard of her for this study. But she talks in the chapter where she discusses the JAM study, she talks for a few pages uh or writes for a few pages, I suppose, more accurately, um, about all of the people telling her about this study and what they're concluding from it and what they're doing differently in their business because of it. And hmm. all of these people not realizing while they're telling her about it that she is the person who did the study.
1: Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Yes. Oh, no, this is very (laughs) meta. So I've been doing a lot of reading about writing centers recently, Mm -hmm. but I just read an article that had done a study, um, so sort of uh, analysis of scholarship in the field, tracking citations of a particular essay in writing center theory that is considered landmark. Um, and how it has appeared over the years and how it's been integrated into other work. Mm -hmm. Um, But it made, (laughs) now the the jam study conversation is making me think of that too, about um, how that single um, sort of nugget of knowledge in this, you know, vast field gets um, sort of reused and reintegrated over and over and how it becomes a part of the field. Mm-hmm. um
0: a, yeah at a certain point it, it a lot of ideas kind of become assumptions um in a way
1: yeah well um i'm trying to think of another word they're just taken as the baseline truth right
0: it's like it's like furniture you know it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah you don't have to discuss it it's there it it affords certain uses mm-hmm. in the room right the, the room of oh and that's the, the social sofa. science yeah <laughs>
1: Mhm your token reference of of the whatever um
0: <laughs> yeah mhm yeah jam study mm-hmm. Every time I say jam study I start thinking of like like um somebody like a graduate student in the crowd like taking notes at a Dave Matthews band concert What? Like they're studying the jam.
1: Oh my. <laughs> Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or actually, you know, maybe, maybe more appropriately at a fish concert. I don't know. There you go. Yeah. Something. <laughs> Jam study. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, we were talking about, about expertise and like developing, honing, mm-hmm. honing the fast decisions. I'm, um, Ingard talks about that too. She's got a, a chapter about, um, how choosing from a vast set of options, the, it's, it's, um, it might kind of be explaining some of of what Gladwell talks about in Blink about expertise and and fast decisions and how they actually are made because she talks about uh, frames expertise as being able to look at a vast number of options and filter Um mm, mm-hmm. to sort of say which things are irrelevant you know or to to hone in on one you know if you've got if you've got three hundred different items they're going to vary on different dimensions but some of them you know there will be groups that have the same thing in common. Yeah. and to sort of hone in on you know these are the distinctions that matter so we can we can throw all these ones out right away cuz they don't have that thing and then among those you know <laughs> these these six over here and these nine over there and this five over here are all actually the same you know they're all the same thing as each other within their little groups because the ways they mm-hmm. differ don't matter um yeah. you know things like that you can you can mm-hmm. sort of chunk them and and make decisions and i'm I'm actually reminded of so um decision overload you know we we talk about um whether whether the big ones even matter and you know one thing we haven't talked about is the the wealth of little choices um which Barry Schwartz talks about at length um mm-hmm. in this TED talk that'll be in show notes and in his his paradox of choice book um the way the little choices you know can consume us and take up so much of our attention and 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 such and I'm um I I think I, I think there's, there's something there with, um, the idea that there is a cost of choice, including the little ones. And I've actually, I've seen this. I actually had a very recent conversation with somebody where we were trying to make a fairly simple decision about what to do, um, with a certain mm-hmm. chunk of time. And, and this person was very overwhelmed, um. And, and this is, this is actually going to be a strategy, strategy clue. This was before I read art of choosing, but only by a few days. So it was still in my mind when I was reading when Mm -hmm. I got to this filtering chapter. Um, and like, it was like, you know, what are we going to do? And what I ended up doing was I just, you know, I, I recognized that this person was stressed and I decided to break the choice down and it's like, well, all right, let's just do this in stages, break it into its component parts and say, okay, which of these two things are we going to do? Take everything mm-hmm. else off the table and condense everything in the world that we've been talking about into these into into two categories for each choice. Yeah. And let's let's say it's it's um, what are we gonna do for dinner? Which is is probably a silly example, but you know if you're stressed out enough, that's a hard decision <laughs> to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say it's it's you know what to do for dinner. Like just break it down. Like do you want to go out or do you want to stay in?
1: There you go. And if yep.
0: you want to stay in, like do should we call for somebody to deliver something or should we make something here? Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's not start with yeah. like planning nine courses and what we're going to do after. Let's just, let's do it mm-hmm. in little steps. Um And I think mm-hmm. the the distinction, you know, with an expert or in that case with somebody who's not overloaded with decisions is all of that is one snap judgment. It's like, oh, well, of course we're going to run to the store and buy these six things and then we're going to make lasagna. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's that, you know, if you've got a whole universe of possibilities and you're feeling overwhelmed, you're not going to. Not gonna see that. And I, I, think the same thing would apply to even some of these big, dis- like the dress. Um, rather than the entire universe of, of wedding dresses, you can say, okay, this is the budget. You know, okay, we've got our budget. Mm-hmm. Um, do a, do a quick little bit of research and say, okay, which stores in the area can fit that budget? If the, is there mm-hmm. a place that they start at $10,000 and we're gonna spend three or less? <laughs> um, and then once you've got that, say, okay, which store are we going to? And that's the store. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Break mm-hmm. it down into stages.
1: Yeah. No, and I I appreciate what you're saying about um, sort of disassembling or deconstructing what seems like um, epic problem decision. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking of students that I talk to um, who feel like the decision they're faced with is, what do I do with the rest of my life? And Mm -hmm. that's a single decision. Right. Oh, that's a great (laughs) example. But what they, and it's, you know, you named some of those questions before, like who should I be with? Um, Mm -hmm. What, and you know, the what dress should I wear is one way of breaking down the overwhelming feeling if you see your, your situation as who should I be with, but really your only problem is you're stressed about your wedding dress budget, you know, that needs to be broken down
0: until you are more aware of
1: how you actually feel. Yeah, it's,
0: it's kind of, Um, it's, it's kind mm -hmm. of like what level are you asking the question at?
1: Yeah, 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 and that can determine how the stakes feel because mm-hmm. I keep thinking about that too. Is that sometimes it doesn't matter what the stakes objectively the impacts on your life really are because if the stakes feel high, right, you have the affective yeah. experience of a high stake decision.
0: I'm i so, yeah. I'll bet I can find at least two self help authors who've used this example. But it's like if I mm-hmm. if I put like a two by four down on on the street in front of your house and say okay, I want you to walk, you know, say it's 20 meters long. I want you to walk these 20 meters on this 2x4 without falling off. Mm-hmm. Um, you are much more likely to successfully do that than if I have a perfectly rigid, equally <laughs> wide 20-meter uh, object like spanning between two buildings 40 stories off the ground. Sure. And it's a, and hey, say yeah. say even it's like a super calm day, so it's even calm 40 stories up, no wind. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same task. Mm -hmm. Uh but are you going to do as well (laughs) are you even going to be able to begin (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and that's not to say like you should pretend when when a decision doesn't have when a decision has life or death stakes that you shouldn't pretend like it you should pretend like it doesn't you know Um, although sometimes maybe we would make better decisions Mm -hmm. doing that but that (laughs) for a lot of these where it's not life and death you know it's it's the level what level are you going to make the decision at because that might Mm -hmm. also change the stakes and make it approachable
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm talking to students about, um, you know, their plan, maybe they're approaching graduation and not only do people keep asking them, but they're getting to the point where certain deadlines are going to start rolling around and they're going to be limiting their own options if they don't start thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so the, the situation they're in feels like what am I going to do with the rest of my life? But the real question is, well, what would you like to do? And what are the the sort of categorical questions we can start asking to navigate where the options even are? Right. You know. Well, and a, and a so, very, a very
0: yeah. David Allen question. Like in in a lot of cases, it's not even a question of what am I going to do with the rest of my life. It's what are you going to do next? Yeah. And that's it. And, I mean, if you have a vision, I mean, and that's the, I think that's the one place where we go wrong with some of these big life choice decisions. Uh, and not to say that I've made them all, all perfectly, but, um, I think sometimes it's like one thing, if, if someone does have a vision for what the rest of their life should be, uh, and, and good, bad, or indifferent, let's just say they do. If you know you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, um, you know, you kind of know what you're shooting for and that determines mm-hmm. what the next step is or at least what the universe of possible next steps are. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of constrains the decision. I think a lot of people who don't have that conviction, I want to be X, I want to be Y, I want to be Z. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people who don't already have that are trying to make the decision on what to do next as though they did. And, I, you know, not to say you, again, not good or bad whether or not you have that vision for your whole life. Mm-hmm. but i think if you don't already have that if that isn't already who you are you shouldn't mm-hmm. be trying to make the next decision as though that's who you are mm. you know what i you mean know, like you're you're yeah. raising the stakes you're saying i'm never going to become a doctor if i get this next decision wrong but you haven't even decided to be a doctor
1: right you you feel like you your decision could be limiting possible things that you don't even know that you want.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And it's, and, and again, you're asking the question at the wrong level. It's, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I've already forgotten what the level is we're talking about, like what deadlines are. Are we, were we talking about additional school or, um.
1: Well, that's the thing. If, if you are only, stuck at the the highest level and you are overwhelmed about tanking the rest of your life, mm-hmm. then it's very hard to slow down. So that's what I'll do in conversations with um students who are in that spot is say, okay, well, there are certain things you would not like to do, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's not talk about those. And right. there are
0: yeah, it, certain again, conditions you would like, What, what right? does an expert do? They filter, they take some of the options off the table.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So if a student immediately says they feel burnt out of school, they don't think they could take another class, at least not right now. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's a great indication that graduate school might be um, a not good choice right now. Maybe not the best way to spend your time and resources for the next couple years. Okay, so what instead? Is there a particular physical place you want to be? Okay, well, that's good. That leaves these options open. Um, is there a certain type of lifestyle that you think? You would be happiest maintaining for a while. Like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that limits it to right. this. So let's keep go- keep going till we.
0: Yeah, and again, have I love that picture. for a while. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's I think that's huge because cause again, like, if you have a vision for where you want your life to be, yes, absolutely, make decisions with the long view mm-hmm. in, in mind. But uh, if you don't, it's it's not going to help the immediate decision to say mm-hmm. what you know. Unless, and and of course, obviously, unless you do come up with an answer. Like if Mm -hmm. you say, well, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And you know, well, great. Then Then make your decision around that. Yeah. If you're struggling to decide that one, though, that's not the decision to make right now.
1: Right. I just thought there's an Onion article circulating right now that's something like Omaha man decides he'll stay in the city for a while yet. (laughs) 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 It's like. Yeah. um, Yeah. Dude yeah. who's moving up the ranks in a, in a carpet selling business. Um, oh,
0: I think I know that guy.
1: I mean, we all know that guy. We are kind <laughs> of that guy.
0: <laughs> no, I, I literally we actually are. know somebody who worked in a carpet store in Omaha mm-hmm. and was, was moving up the ranks. Mm-hmm. Not recently, but yeah, it sounded mm-hmm. exactly like somebody. Well,
1: like, and, yeah. and that might get out of here in a couple years. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. And it, yeah. Um, yeah, what, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life?
1: <laughs> well, no, and I think what you were bringing up, um, I feel like my, my own career path, such as it is thus far, um, is very much clarified by what you're talking about because in the last couple years especially, um, I've reflected on how much simpler my quote-unquote major life decisions have been because of my clarity about what I would like to do with the rest of my life, you know? So mm-hmm. I I have sensed for a while...
0: Which is uh, phlebotomy, correct?
1: Absolutely. Um, that my... That that clarity in my head um, has afforded me a lot of um, privilege in a different way. And also that, you know... Um, what am I trying to say? So because I've known that I wanted to stay in school until I have enough degrees that someone pays me to teach English at the college level. Um, that clarifies a lot of my decisions. I know where I'm supposed to be doing what at what moment, mm-hmm. you know, within a range of, of right. options for what th- that can look like a lot of things. A lot of different people do grad school in a lot of different ways, um, and end up at the same place that I'm trying to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, yeah yeah so in a way, like i've I've been afforded um, a, I don't know I don't know, like things have, have been, yeah
0: so so we're talking about um how where you want to end up has constrained your universe of choices. yeah, um, which is sort of the same thing that that Iyengar says about you know the you know being being expert in making choices in a certain domain comes from being able to filter out and filter down those options to a smaller set of what really matters. Ah, uh,
1: okay. So I guess what I'm calling clarity, you're saying, could also be called expertise.
0: Right. And in this case, is not expertise the same way that a chess master would have expertise or an right. interior decorator would have expertise. You didn't mm-hmm. get this over years of practice, although you have practiced for uh, a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, you have practiced for As 26 years. As we know, years. I am a doctor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's an expertise in who you are and what you want.
1: Ooh, um, that was, mm, you poetry know, man.
0: And it's, again, not that we always get that right, even. I mean, people are constantly screwing up their own preferences and
1: no, but again, making choices
0: against their own best interests. But when we're talking about, like, what kind of life do you want? Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, people can get that wrong, but at the end of the day, I think if you have clarity on what kind of life you want, you have clarity on it. Mm -hmm. Period. End of story. You are the expert on you.
1: It's like what we were saying before. Sometimes just choosing to do it makes it the thing you want. You know, we were talking about that before. Um, In terms of relationships, you can choose to continually work and be present (laughs) <laughs> and do love, <laughs> and verb your love, <laughs> and you can verb your life, Gross. and that I'm not saying that in picture of a boat kind of way, <laughs> but you can you can you can choose to verb your life, and verb that's, your life. That's something that I've recognized more recently has has made the last you know however many years of my life more smooth and more satisfying. Because I've committed to a decision, or no, rather I continue to commit to a decision I, I right. started to make. I right. started making it many years ago, but right. I continue to make it every day. I get up and go to work.
0: Oh, absolutely, and that's yeah, that's another thing with these people agonize over these big choices, and it, it, <laughs> you are going to make many fewer decisions about where to work than you're going to make about whether or not to get up out of bed and go to work that day.
1: Oh God,
0: um, and that Nailed for it. a lot yeah. of people, that's a very automatic decision. But that doesn't mean you're not making it. And for a lot of people, that's not an automatic decision. And to make it day in and day out for Mm -hmm. years on end, you know, I Mm -hmm. I think, I think again, it's, um, (laughs) the little choices are killer. Um, They're the ones you gotta look out for, not the big ones. Mm -hmm. You can screw up a big choice for sure. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot, a lot fewer people, I think, I, I, again, um, Max Leibman is not actually a doctor. Uh, A lot more people I suspect are like lying in hospital beds right now dying because of the small choices they made or didn't make every day for years on end than the people who chose to live in the wrong house or get the wrong job or marry the wrong person. And all of those, you know, people die from all of those too. Um, If you live in a house full of radon, if you choose to get a job as a uh, power line repairman or if you choose to marry an axe murderer. Um, obviously, you die from those choices too uh unless you 're mike myers unless you 're mike myers but if you if you um you know smoking uh not exercising, not getting enough sleep um, it's the little day in and day out choice, and you know back to work, not the show, but going back to the example of work um what you all the little decisions you make on the job are probably going to be you know you can agonize for months over job offers um but if you're there for any length of time, you know, even, even in today's economy where people hop jobs all the time, you'll be there longer than you spend deciding. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you are doing while you're there day in and day out is going to have a bigger impact on what you can do next than what you decided in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and going going back to big life decisions. Um, y- what y-
1: are you doing with your
0: life? <laughs> ah, that's an excellent question. Um, but yeah, with the what are you doing with your life kind of question, the other thing I would say, um, in addition to it's paralyzing to think about what you're going to do next, um, if you're thinking about in terms of what to do with the rest of your life and you don't know, the other thing I would say is it, and, and I think you alluded to this a little bit a moment ago, um, and, and this will get to another, yet another book. There's going (laughs) to be like nine books in our, in our show notes. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. You have a lot of reading this week. Um. Catch up. (laughs) Uh, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, hmm. um, who uh, he talks about like the the cost of keeping options open, and and even more so of doing nothing um, mm. as as being huge. And like in your case, you've been able to make these decisions and keep going. And even if they're the wrong decisions, you've kept going. And you now have credentials and experience and skills and connections mm-hmm. built up over several years of doing the path that you're on, where even if it ends up being the wrong path, you've got something. Mm-hmm. Um, where if somebody just agonizes over the decision, doesn't make it, gets stuck in a job they don't like that's not going anywhere. And stays at Carpetland in Omaha. <laughs> and stays at Carpetland in Omaha for another couple of years. I, you know, Maybe they're moving up in Carpetland, but chances are if they had just made a decision about the things they were agonizing over. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you are, you are better off, uh, doing, in a lot of cases, you are better off doing anything well Mm -hmm. than, than doing nothing and wondering which one is right. Um, Ariely's example from, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, off the top of my head, I should probably just say this (laughs) right now. I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world because I hate when people mispronounce my last name, but (laughs) I'm going to get so many of them wrong. Um, but, uh, one example he uses that's a little trivial, but I think, I think a little, you know, uh, heartbreaking too, is he talks about a friend who, uh, wanted to get a digital camera when one of his kids was born and spent like huh. six months researching models and comparing and trying to decide because it was a several, he like, he wanted to get a good one. It was a several hundred dollar purchase. It mattered. It had some substance. But of course, if you spend six months trying to decide what camera to buy, what aren't yeah. you doing for six months?
1: yeah
0: you're not taking any pictures of your kid um and it's it's kind of a silly example but i, I mm. back to the back to the big life stuff
1: mm-hmm. if
0: if you are agonizing over what to do with the rest of your life because you don't want to make the wrong decision for the next stage in your life and you don't make that decision and you just default to whatever you're doing right now, and especially if whatever you're doing right now isn't much if you're working at carpet land mm-hmm. um you you give up much more than you would even if you chose the wrong thing to go after in a lot of cases
1: yeah well and I was thinking too um, and I was thinking of it earlier too because it sounds like like, um, the the type of bad decision but that's another thing when I'm talking to students or even um, you know peers of mine when they're at that moment where it feels like Um, they would like something to change, but they know that they could be, what they're doing right now could be valuable to, um, I don't know. I have a, a sort of, no, it's not a theory, (laughs) a working theory, um, about when new opportunities come up. Um, so there's always the tension of, you need to be able to say no to things, um, so that you are not always taking on every new opportunity that comes along and soon you're, your plate overfloweth and you have no yes. time and energy. <laughs> yes. That is bad. So you absolutely have to be able to discern which new opportunities would actually be good and which wouldn't. But that when an opportunity comes up that may seem a little bit outside your scope or tangential, but is still exciting to you for whatever reason. Um, If you aren't sure what the bigger goal you're working toward is, I see very little reason not to jump over to that thing. Because what if it is the thing that could guide the big goal? You know what I mean? So So if in my life, I didn't know what my end goal was, but I had a particular interest or passion, why not let that guide me to a thing and see if that could sort of give me enough experience to know what I want? Because if you don't know what you want, then what is the, I feel like that decision is even easier. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. If, I mean, as long as, as long as the thing, you know, the option you're looking at, um, you mentioned like a passion or interest, as long as we're not talking about something that you obviously would hate, you know, um. (laughs) No, 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 then that's the easy no.
1: There's there's
0: a free, free first lesson in ceramics at the art supply store. Well, I hate clay. I should go do that.
1: (laughs) Oh you know,
0: I, yeah, obviously. I'm allergic
1: and I hate it.
0: <laughs> Let's I'm, do it. I'm allergic to cats and they're looking for a volunteer at the Humane Society.
1: It's an well, opportunity. No, yeah. I, well, my I, mom said I should go for new opportunities.
0: And, and, and again, yeah, why not, why not go for it as long as you've got the band. And by
1: the way, I usually listen to our mother. That was not directed at
0: <laughs> our mother. Just the One's, one's mother. mother. One's mother. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Priority once again, if you want to read complete show notes for this episode, visit us online at priority.fm slash two. And if you enjoyed the show today, please leave us a positive view on iTunes if that helps new listeners find the all of these people not realizing while they're telling her about it, that she is the person who did the study.
1: Oh my God. (laughs) Um, And
0: and it reminds me, I, uh, I read a good chunk uh, in December. I read a good chunk of Rebecca Solnit's book, men explain things to me. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But the first chapter is about how she wrote a book about some figure or other. I, I should have done some research before telling this story, but <laughs> let's just say it's Chris Pine. Um, It's not, it's as far as I know, it's not an actor and not a current actor, but let's say it's Chris Pine. So she wrote this book about Chris Pine a few years ago and she's telling a story about being at a party Um, and her and one of her, one of her good female friends are there and they're about to leave. And, and the host kind of corners them and wants to make some small talk before they go. Cause they hadn't really caught up during the party. And, uh, and he's, He's asking what she's been up to, and she says, "Oh, well, I just wrote this book on Chris Pine." And uh, again, it was not Chris Pine. Um, <laughs> apologies to Rebecca Solnit <laughs> and feminist historian activists everywhere that I'm getting this wrong. But anyhow, she says, "Oh, I just wrote this book on Chris Pine. It's got published this year. It's doing very well. It's being being well reviewed." And and he kind of like glazes over and just like skips over that and is and starts saying, "Oh, you know." Uh, there's this very important book on Chris Pine that just came out this year. And, oh,
1: jeez!
0: Uh, have you have you heard of it? You might want to give it some consideration. I was reading about it in the New Yorker, and da 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 da, da. and and like <laughs> she being being an expert, you know, knows immediately that there probably isn't another important book on the subject that has just come out. Um, but before she can say it, her friend says, "That's her book." Um, mm. But the guy just keeps droning on, and her friend huh. like has to say like two more times, "No, that's her book." <laughs> You oh are talking gosh. about <laughs> Rebecca's book. Um, and <laughs> so I thought of that when I read the the bits about people telling Sheena Iyengar about the jam study. Um, when she's the one who did the jam study.
1: People explain things to
0: me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's actually, um, that's, that, the introduction, that story is in the introduction of men explain things to me, which is, mm-hmm. I kind of expected the whole book to be about that more directly. And that's one of the reasons I don't think I finished it. Um, hmm. Is, it was, it was going to be about the, you know, the tendency of men to over explain to women in a condescending way and often when talking to Mm -hmm. women that, uh, probably know more about the subject than they do. Which I believe is called manscaping.
1: I'm hanging up now.